0: Yo, 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 what's good, everybody, what is good, what's happening, welcome back to another episode of the Isaiah Kid Podcast, the IKP, welcome back, welcome back, welcome back, Wednesday episode, I hope you guys enjoyed your weekend as much as I did, I enjoyed my weekend, it was hot, but I enjoyed it, <clears throat> uh, depending on where you guys were, I mean, I'm in D.C., so it was flaming, but once again, I'm your humble and highly favored host, Isaiah Kid of the Isaiah Kid Podcast, Isaiah Kid Podcast, the IKP. Um, so obviously NBA playoff talk. Where I'm, I'm heavy NBA playoffs. Is so much going. Like last week, so much was happening. Like I couldn't. I could barely talk about Coach K and his um, his announcement around his retirement and so forth. I did talk about it a little bit. But that's gonna be a that's gonna be a story that's gonna to continue to get talked about as the time continues, as the season progresses with college basketball. But NBA playoffs, and yes, I do have a guest. You guys are getting well acquainted to him already. Uh Cambui Bumani of the Independent Intel Podcast. I told you guys I like his insight. I like the I like I like what he how he breaks down the game. Um, so I'm you know, I'm gonna continue to bring them on. And Kambui, do you have anything that you wanna mention or throw out there to the listeners? Yeah, hey, you guys, uh great to be
1: back on Isaiah's platform. Uh, it's one of the favorite platforms I'm excited to be on to talk about basketball back and forth. Just dropped a couple of episodes the past two weeks on independent Intel, uh one of my old podcast mates from college and then a recent one with an Instagram content creator called light on sports check those out on spotify and apple pod we're really just ready to talk about these playoffs that have been happening in the second round recently and i know we're gonna have a good discussion today
0: oh yeah oh yeah definitely definitely so (laughs) so i couldn't get you on so i got you on before the playoffs started i think yeah right before the playoffs started we gave our predictions and so forth some of my predictions some of our predictions came out accurate uh obviously there were some big time upsets i would say there was some there was some upsets let me just so let me just talk about before i move on to the second round i want to get your opinion on the phoenix and lakers series uh, obviously injuries played a big part but phoenix did what they had to do phoenix throughout a six game series they were the best team they were the better team um, give me your take on the Lakers. What they, what 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 should the offseason look like? Um, Anthony Davis and his injuries. I, like, before I let you go. What I said about Anthony Davis, I think Anthony Davis is the most important uh at this point, he's probably the most important Laker because they can't win. The way how their team is built, they can't win without Anthony Davis. And I I I based it I based Anthony Davis health like this. It's just like uh, a luxury car, an exotic car, an exotic car that costs $100,000. And one day you have this nice car and you want to go to the gas station and you want to get 87 gas. Well, you just can't. I mean, what's the point of having a turbocharged engine? What's the point of it of you having 400, 500 horsepower and you're not going to get the ultimate performance out of the car? Now, like I said, Anthony Davis can eat right. He can have the, the you know he can have a great fitness regimen, but that doesn't mean it's going to limit his injuries. But it does reduce the risk of his injuries. Just this his teammate, LeBron James. So you can't go cheap. You can you can't go expensive on the car and go cheap on gas. And just like with the car and the gas situation. You With Anthony Davis, you're a wonderful talent, but you got to invest more into your body. So give me your take on the Lakers in the offseason, Anthony Davis and so forth.
1: Yeah, um, I want to touch base on the series that they have with the Suns at first. Um, it's pretty clear before AD went out, Lakers were in a pretty prime position. I was in game four before he got hurt. It was a close game. Phoenix was actually up late in that second quarter. But like last year, he's the most important player on the team. They go as far as he goes, and his availability is important. So when he went out, it kind of, in essence, allowed the Suns to take advantage of a matter of sequences that coincided within their favor. And DeAndre didn't play particularly well, even when AD was there. So when AD was gone, it allowed him to blossom even more. It also takes away, when AD's not there, he's a huge part of the defensive ability. It also takes away a huge part of their offensive ability as well. Mm -hmm. Not a great three-point shooting team. So we are not a great shooting team, most times in basketball, that means you play heavily within, inside. And when you have a guy that's a huge part of your interior game not there, that means LeBron has to carry the load as the playmaker for non-shooters, as well as be a huge part of your points in the paint. He was subsided in terms of his ability to be dynamic because of his injury and his old age. So AD not being there was the main reason why they lost. And In over overtime, Phoenix got in the rhythm, kind of the vibe, their younger team tested the middle that laker defense that was without its focal leader focal point middle of the defense and then now it's the end of it for there i think for la moving forward it kind of have to do with i think toronto started and it worked out for the raptors when they won their first championship you have to low manage a player with an injury history like ad and the only way you can properly do that while be able to formulate continuity and availability with the rest of your roster so when you go into the playoffs you have chemistry within your quarter where your load management star can acquiesce in the productivity in the postseason. That roster around them has to be much better and have forms of duality offensively and defensively. They went two years without being a very good three-point shooting team. I got them a title in the bubble, and then they got them out in the first round this year. They got to get more shooters. And I mean guys that can shoot the basketball, not washed-up individuals like Wesley Matthews and hit-or-miss guys like Contavius Caldwell-Pope. And you probably need another playmaker that's going to take pressure off of LeBron from having to be the primary decision maker as he gets up in age. If that's going to be Schroeder again, you're going to have to relinquish the point guard duties to shooter a lot more. Um, if that's not Schroeder and it's someone else, I don't know who that guy can be. It's going to have to be somebody that's uh, savvy enough to playmake for others while LeBron or AD are on the floor or off. And I think that's where the Lakers are gonna have to go moving forward. Low-manage AD. The only way you can low-manage AD is you're going to have to make sure proper rosters around AD and LeBron, 12 AD's not on the floor, you're competing and winning games in the regular season. Because it's pretty clear throughout AD's career, he's his worst enemy when it comes to being healthy. So you got to protect him from health, which means he can't be playing 40 to 45 minutes, not, not even just half of the season, but over half of the season. He's going to have to get that treatment that Kawhi got. And I think long-term that's going to help him moving forward because in the playoffs, He won't have as much wear and tear in his body, and he'll be able to maximize his fullest potential throughout the season because I think the injury that he got in Phoenix was a culmination of not just the injury he had in the regular season, but the wear and tear he had the past two years. And if AD has proven anything throughout his career, from being a Pelican to being a Laker, when he has to constantly be everything, which is the dirty worker, the star player, The linchpin on offense, the linchpin on defense, he's going to wear down and he's going to crumple. And Ellie's got to prevent that from happening moving forward.
0: Well said. Um, Well said. I think the real test is going to be put to Rob Palenka to, you know, his real, let's see, let's see some real GMing skills. Um, But I'm going to shift gears. I didn't want to spend too much time on it. We're good. So I'm going to shift gears to the Brooklyn Nets and the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, this series has already started? Well, it hasn't quite started yet. Because the series, a playoff series really don't start until the road team wins a game. <laughs> and boy oh boy. <laughs> have the Bucks been far? They have not been close to winning a game. Um <laughs> the bu- like the Bucks look like a deer in headlights in game 2. And that's no pun intended. <laughs> but they like a deer in headlights. Um, I let I don't know where to start. I mean, let's start. With, I'm gonna start with Brooklyn's greatness. Um, the greatness of Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. <laughs> I don't know what else to say about this guy. This guy. I, we get it. He's seven foot tall. He has a handle. He's probably, if not the greatest scorer of the basketball in league history. But the fact that he's able to come back off an Achilles tear, which is usually a death sentence, and he's averaging 32 points in the playoffs. He's ha- he's shooting 50% from three, 55% from the field, and 90% from the free throw line. Is, 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 is this version of Kevin Durant the best player in the world? And what... What in the hell is going on Milwaukee and Mike Budenholzer, Giannis, and Chris Middleton? What is going on? First, is Kevin Durant is Kevin Durant the best player in the world? If not, who is? Give me that first.
1: Yeah, I believe so. And I think when Durant was with the Warriors, contrary to popular belief, he that's where he really established himself as the best player. I know a lot of people love to say, well, yeah, three All-Stars, but let's be real. Um... <laughs> Curry was his biggest competition on that team in terms of his talent. And that offense ran through him, Durant. So they were unbeatable because of Durant's playmaking ability on the wing. And as we saw against Toronto, once he went out of the lineup, they were very vulnerable to beat. And the Raptors dusted him off in six. Could have been five if Kyle Lowry makes the open three-point shot in the corner at the buzzer. So flash forward to Brooklyn now. He's just playing at such a dynamic level. And the way that they're playing is kind of what – OKC probably could have been if they had more nuanced coaching offensively yeah. Yeah. and better point guard play in terms of probably not better point guard play because Kyrie, although he's been really unsocial in this series, I don't think it's any much of a better point guard than Westbrook, but better overall play at that position because Kyrie's a better scorer and a better shooter than Westbrook from a natural sense. And so what Durant's doing right now is kind of what he did at OKC when he had a co-star. Um, the offense is still running through him, and he's getting everything at ease as he pull-ups off the triple bounces. Um, what he's doing probably even more fluidly is his post game. It wasn't as polished in OKC. It's even more polished now. And he's being even—he's getting everything within the flow of the offense. And honestly, the way Brooklyn's doing everything offensively is a Marco kind of— uh, Mike D'Antoni. I, I'm going to continue to say it. D'Antoni is coaching that basketball team. His philosophy is literally the Brooklyn within that Brooklyn success story. And the skinny on D'Antoni was always offense is gung-ho, but they don't play any type of defense, and all they do is shoot threes and whatnot. But look how their offense was so dynamic with Steve Nash was the focal point, James Harden was the focal point, and, and the D'Antoni system throughout his career. Mm-hmm. That system now is Durant. So imagine the best offensive player in the world ever on arguably the most explosive offensive system created in this 21st century of basketball it's a success story waiting to happen and that's given milwaukee a ton of fits because yeah we know guarding durant for the bucks is going to be a tough task we knew guarding kyrie was going to be a tough task but look how many wide open three-point shots joe harris has got oh my god look how many wide open three-point shots landry shaman has gotten look how many quality looks that I, i i get they're letting blake griffin take but look how easy Blake Griffin is getting his shots off in this offense. This offense is lethal, and it starts and ends with, in my opinion, the best player in basketball, Durant. Because, yes, everybody loves to say, well, he's not the best player, he's the best scorer. The game of basketball is all about putting the ball in the basket, first and <laughs> foremost. That's the most important thing. And considering the fact that Durant has been a rather underrated on ball defender in the postseason, he's doing it both ends of the basketball court. And he's a main reason why the Brooklyn Nets have lost one game in the postseason so far. So, as far as I'm concerned, he's the best player in basketball. Now, with the Bucks, their calling court in this series was what? Their defense.
0: Their defense, yeah. I haven't
1: heard anybody outside of one of my close friends saying he picked the Bucks because he thought they were gonna outscore the Nets. Everybody was like, it was the defense that Milwaukee was gonna bring to the table. And so far, they haven't provided any type of resistance, mainly from the perimeter. Mike James, Shamit. Joe Harris, Kyrie, Durant, they're able to get any quality look from three that they want. And that is a huge problem because we know Milwaukee throughout their playoff history, like they've shown in this series, they're a jump shooting team. Mm Mm-hmm which is an issue because their two best shooters are very streaky. So the only time being a jump shooting team has worked in playoff history is when you've had the two best shooters in all of basketball, in Klay Thompson and Steph Curry, and then when they got KD, the three best shooters in basketball. Right. If you got streaky shooters, it's not going to work because Middleton, has shown throughout his playoff history, he will go cold, and he has. Brooke Lopez has improved as a stretch five, but he'll, he'll go cold two. And Drew Holiday is a nice guy, but I think this is the best you're going to get from Drew Holiday offensively. You may get 20, may get 19, but his strength and asset on the team is being a two-way player. Uh, and we know what Giannis brings to the table as a shooter as well. So knowing that Milwaukee is a jump shooting team, they're going to have nights like game one and two. That also means defensively they have to be locked in to stay in the basketball game. They have not been locked in all series, and nothing shows me that they will be anytime soon. Unless their best chance, in my opinion, is utilize a defense that teams utilizing against Kevin Durant when he was in OKC, especially with Harden not on the floor. You bracket Durant, and you basically let Kyrie Irving beat you. Now, the issue with letting Kyrie Irving beat you in comparison to letting Westbrook beat you in the past is that Irving can shoot better. Irving can score better at all three levels. And Irving is a lightning in the bottle waiting to happen. He can go on runs that can totally take a team's heart away. But I think that's the Bucks' best chance in stopping the Nets' offense defensively because guarding Durant one-on-one with Tucker, Giannis, Middleton, Holiday has been a recipe of disaster.
0: I, I totally agree. Brooklyn, The Brooklyn Nets have won 11 of their last 12 games. Um, and that's dating back to the regular season. And... <clears throat> They are totally dis- disrupting the whole formula of what wins in the playoffs. Usually, usually there's some key ingredients that most championship teams have. Uh, experienced coaching, a defense, some type of continuity. The Nets have neither. They have need. They have none of those things, and I, Steve Nash is a great basket. He's probably he's not probably he is a great basketball mind, but he has a great coaching staff behind him. This team has no continuity. <laughs> like the big the victory with James Harden, Kevin. Like they're beating Milwaukee, and they only have James Harden, and 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 then now you have like their defense in the regular season. It was, I think the defensive rating of regular season was like 23rd. So that's bottom half. But I I kind of thought I thought the Brooklyn Nets defensive struggles were a bit overstated because I feel like with the lack of continuity, they they haven't been able to yank like defense is a lot of defense about effort, communication, knowing where guys are gonna be. Well, in order to have that type of communication and knowing what guys got to be, you got to have that type of fluidity and continuity, which the Nets still don't have, really. But they are so potent offensively. And I think with Milwaukee, the problem that I'm seeing is, OK, Durant, you can't stop him. Because PJ Tucker tries to get physical, but even in game two last night, as we saw, by the way, this is be being this is being recorded on Tuesday. You guys will hear this on Wednesday, so you know bear with us. But Monday night, game two, they had PJ Tucker starting out on Kevin Durant. PJ Tucker put, picked up two fouls, two, two picked up two quick for two two quick fouls, excuse me, and. That changed – I feel like that changed the whole momentum of the game because then that had, that, that led to the Bucs putting Giannis on Durant and for some reason Durant just went crazy. But Milwaukee is letting these other guys get going. Joe Harris has confidence. Landry Shammond has confidence. Mike James has confidence. Blake Griffin – I mean, Blake Griffin turned about the clock. So it's not only – you're not stopping Durant. Okay. You're not stopping Kyrie, okay, but you're not stopping none of these other guys either. And let me just point out something about Chris Middleton because Chris Middleton, like they added Drew Holiday, I feel like I, I, I like I kind of agree with you. I feel like Drew Holiday kind of has a peak; he has a ceiling. And I, and, I, and and Drew Holiday is a great player. He's a good two way player. You know, he's gonna play his he's gonna play his tail off on defense. He can shoot the three here and there. He can create his own shot. But Chris Middleton has to be better than 15 points per game, 50% from the free throw line, 30% from the field, and 23% from the three-point line. That, that Chris Middleton as, quote-unquote, second option on offense, it has to be better than that. It, ha, it, it, it can't be that. You're not going to be able to beat a team of Brooklyn's caliber if Chris Middleton, your second option offensively, is is giving you half of the production that he gives you in the regular season. Usually in the regular season to the postseason, your production is supposed to double or somewhat double. He's giving you half of his production in the postseason versus Brooklyn. So so that's not gonna work for Milwaukee. Um they have to I felt like game two was a must win. Because now you're asking you're asking now you have to win four out of the next five games. I just don't see that happening. Um so I think this series goes six games. I have I think originally originally I had Brooklyn in six or seven games. I thought the series would be much closer. I do think Milwaukee will probably get a game at home. Probably, but I just don't know. Like, tell me this Mike Budenhoser. Because we can talk about Giannis. We can talk about Chris Middleton. We can talk about the lack of paint points or the lack of aggression to get to the rim, even though Brooklyn doesn't have – like, they have Kevin Durant playing the five, literally. What What is going on with Mike Budnoza? Why hasn't he adjusted – why hasn't he made in-game adjustments? But then why hasn't he made adjustments, like, after these blowout, horrible losses?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it may be – I call it, oddly, oddly enough, Brad Stevens syndrome, where it's kind of like I'm, I'm going to live and die with my system because my system got me this far. Obviously, his system is has roots from the great Popovich Street. And mm-hmm. with that system, he's won Coach of the Year twice. Uh, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks when he coached him were one seed. So he's been successful. He's got to a conference final. He's got to the precipice of being in an NBA final. So to him, he feels like, you know, going to live and die in my system, and with my personnel, we'll either find a way to break through according to the adjustments the opposition makes to us, or we'll die trying. Now, in this series, I wonder if Budenholzer and his players and his staff misread the box score I just misread the game itself in game one. Because in game one, from a box score standpoint, Kyrie and Durant did not play well. Mm-hmm. They didn't shoot well but they got 50 points. But however, sometimes the box score and the point totals are all misleading. So while Irving and Durant didn't shoot well, in game one, guess who also got in foul trouble? P.J. Tolker. He got in foul trouble guarding Durant in game one. That commenced in game two. And guess what continued in game two and in game one? Irving and Durant continued continued to get wherever they want on the floor. And this time, they made their shots. Well, Durant, most importantly, he made his. And I think they came out in game two feeling like We single-guarded them in game one, and their stars didn't decimate us. So we feel like we can run that same defensive scheme again and reap the same benefits. That didn't happen. And to make a bad thing worse, they shot not as worse as they did in game one, but they didn't shoot any better. It was still 29% from three. They continue to be jump shooters. They continue to get beat off the dribble defensively in one-on-one sets, which, okay, you could somewhat live with. But if you're not rotating defensively and giving up wide open threes in the corner or at the top of the key, then you're basically not even doing what you do well coming into the series, which is being a very sound defensive team. Right. But my issue with Budenhoser has always been the reason sometimes going with your system from start to finish throughout your coaching career isn't enough because maybe you don't have the personnel to run that system night in and night out and get results mm-hmm. in the postseason they were a tall, athletic, long basketball team. And in game one, they showed early by crashing the glass and playing inside, they could hang with the Brooklyn Nets. In game two, they started doing that a little bit, saw some adjustments and resistance from Brooklyn, and then they were reverted back to the old bucks. Drive and kick, jump shooting, contested threes. And they didn't have it going, and they were off, and they lost. And so that's kind of the issue with the Bucks and Budenholzer. They don't utilize their length and their size to play more inside out. Instead, they want to play outside in. Mm. And they don't have the shooters or the personnel to survive that way against better competition. And with a Brooklyn Nets team that's getting even better defensively as the playoffs goes on.
0: Absolutely. And
1: their offense reaching at an immense uptick, it's just a recipe for disaster that I don't see Milwaukee recovering from.
0: I agree. I've seen two things, two problems that I saw. Um... First, defensively, you mentioned it. The rotations, the effort. Like I said, it's a lot of defense. It's just about effort. And the rotations that I saw from from the Milwaukee Bucks after somebody got beat off the dribble, the rotations were horrible. The rotations were lazy and slow, and the closeouts were horrible. And unlike Milwaukee, Brooklyn has shooters. They have shoot, like they have bona fide shooters. Kevin Durant, a shooter. Joe Harris, a knockdown shooter. Kyrie Irving is a great shooter. These guys, Brooklyn doesn't have they don't have too many streaky guys. They have bona fide jump shooting players. Another thing on offense that I saw from the Milwaukee Bucks was one dribble, two dribbles, a pass, maybe, and then there's a shot. It, 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 I seen so. I seen a couple times where Giannis would just get the ball. He would get the rebound, pull up. Nineteen seconds into the shot clock, he jacks a three. And I just don't. I just don't understand those type of shot selections from Milwaukee because then that leads to semi transition buckets, and you can't get. So your defense is like when your defense is set, it's already struggling, but when your defense isn't set it's a it's a recipe for disaster and just transition buckets for Brooklyn i i, I feel so I, I don't i think Milwaukee as you mentioned it they have to play inside out they have to dominate and imbue, and and use their size um especially with the jump shot not falling the jumper the last two game one they shot the ball poorly and I thought coming into game two, I'm like, they should be able to shoot the ball a tad bit better. But that really wasn't the case. It was still kind of like the same. But they didn't that like Giannis' lack of aggression, I just did not like what I saw at all from Milwaukee. Um, so I I I, I, I think this series I don't want to say it's over, but I think it's over. <laughs> I think it's over, and this is and this is without James Harden. This is without their quote unquote point guard, right? Like, so I I, I think Brooklyn is anybody in the Eastern Conference beating Brooklyn? Like, you know, Milwaukee obviously, but then Philadelphia or Atlanta, dude. Like, are they beating Brooklyn? I
1: think Atlanta probably has the best shot because they can score. Um, I don't think there's a defense in the East that has the schematic principles to shut down Brooklyn enough because sports is a two-way avenue. So okay, once you get a stop defensively, you got to go back on the offensive end and do what school we'll And with Philadelphia, we're seeing right now with Atlanta, and they'll probably improve it maybe win that series. They have the personnel with the multitude of long wings that can defend, but Ben Simmons is a liability jump shooting wise. I don't know how long Embiid can still play on a torn meniscuits, balled out in game one. But long term, as we go to a conference final, if they make it there, can he still play at that level? I don't know. And then Philly, they have shooters in terms of Tobias, Danny, Seth Curry, but they're all streaky. So when they're hitting it, it's good. When they're not, it's like, what's happening? And against Brooklyn, everybody needs to be on all cylinders offensively as well as playing well defensively. So it's a it's a complete effort. You got to be able to defend these guys. Then you got to be able to score on the other end, too. You can't have the best of both worlds. You think you're going to outscore them. They've improved so much defensively where that's not going to work. You think you're just going to stop them, and then that'll be good enough. That's not going to be enough either. So it's just it's a question mark that they're going to have to figure out moving forward. But I don't think anybody can stop Brooklyn in the East. I think the only team that can stop them in the NBA is the Clippers because they have the personnel in the wings, the slowdown of Durant, and Clippers are the number one three-point shooting team in basketball. When they're making their shots offensively, they're a tough out to be as Dallas saw in Game Seven. I, I'm,
0: I'm gonna get to that. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to that. Um, I'm gonna get to that. I think that's interesting. I think that is. I think that's very interesting. Um. And we mentioned you mentioned so I mentioned Atlanta in the other Eastern Conference series, uh, Eastern Conference semis. Uh, Atlanta versus the Philadelphia 76ers. Atlanta has a 1 0 lead. They came out. They uh, they they it looked like they were gonna run away with the game. It looked like they were gonna run away with the game, but Atlanta's very young, they're very sporadic. Their highs are their high is really high, their low is relatively low. Um and they and they usually hit both during some games. Atlanta, as you mentioned, Atlanta, <laughs> it, it's so funny. Um, and I gotta give credit with credit. I gotta give props with props. Is due. Rashad Phillips has been on point with Trey Young and his analysis with Trey Young. Trey Young, I mean, and and, and I, my fandom. I've always liked Trey Young, but my fandom has sort of grown. Uh, throughout the postseason for Trey Young because he's just so so he's just so good. Like I think his I think people kind of forget about the playmaking skills. Like he's a, obviously he's a great shooter from deep, but the playmaking skills I feel like are uh, not like talked about enough. Um, and he's an actual point guard. Uh, so with 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 Trey Young with the offensive weapons that the Atlanta Hawks have, you said they can, like, in the Eastern Conference, they're the only team that could v- probably, like, keep up with Brooklyn. Uh, my thing is this, okay? What does Atlanta has to do to win this series versus Philadelphia?
1: Find a way to beat the trap. Which is, which is exactly what Doc Rivers is alluding to bringing in game two. Hmm. Rivers made a great statement in terms of saying we can't let Trey Young turn the corner and get in the lane. Once he turns the corner and get in the lane, it's a wrap. Atlanta's offense is unstoppable because contrary to popular belief, Trey Young is at his best, not when he establishes himself first and foremost from deep It's when he establishes himself in the painted area. Once he turns the corner and starts throwing up the lobs and pick and roll action, floaters and pick and roll option, yep. or even a pull up in a pick and roll option. It makes it tough to guard because now your big's in no man's land. He has to commit to the guard because he's making such great plays as a scorer. And once he does that, lob opportunities are open. Now the wings have to leave their corner areas, a spot of three point shooting defenders, to coincide with guarding a threat in the lane is Trey Young. You trap him on the top of the key, get the ball out of his hands. Two things happens. One, the ball is no longer in his hands. Two, he no longer turns the corners in the lane. Now you're putting the ball in the hands of a boy, Donovan who can make plays, but he's not the playmaker that Trey Young is in a pick and roll set. Atlanta's ability to, to find a way to play through a trap. And that's going to mean. Two things, Trey Young's going to have to learn how to play without the basketball early, often, and effectively for these guys to survive that. Because now if he's able to play the, without the basketball like a Curry, the trap does nothing to him. Because now he's able to move without the basketball and some catch-and-shoot opportunities. Someone else is going to have to become a primary decision-maker for them. It's probably going to have to be Bogdanovich or maybe even Kevin Herter who had a three or four assists game, I think, in game one. If is able to find another primary ball handler that allows training to play off the ball and they're still able to get effective sets and offensive opportunities for a John Collins and a Capella towards the rim. They'll find a way to beat the Sixers because now they're still scoring in the hundreds. And the more they score in the hundreds, the more I don't trust Philly to match that point output total with them Mm. on the offensive end.
0: Yeah. That's the thing with Philadelphia. Um, Like very good, like elite defensively. Um, especially with you when you got guys on the perimeter such as Simmons and Danny Green, and then you, you go to the interior, you you have to meet Embiid. Um, very good defensively. I think uh, offensively, they're mediocre. Um especially especially um uh, with no Embiid. they're very mediocre. They become a mediocre offensive basketball team. Um Philadelphia, can is this? Can can we just admit it that maybe this Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid thing is not going to work? Um, cause cause Simmons and I like Simmons. It's not a it's not a hate towards Simmons. Cause I like Ben Simmons' game, and I've always liked his game. I think uh, we you know the jump shooting is obviously a a a thing that he needs to work on. Uh, free throw shooting uh, as well, but. The lack of, of the lack of perimeter shot or the lack of the perimeter threat that he brings, uh, it limits him as a player offensively, uh, and it limits the whole team. It, can this Can this Can this Embiid and Ben Simmons thing ever work?
1: No, it's because Ben Simmons can't shoot the basketball. Um, it might not come back. It might not come back to bite him against Atlanta because I think Atlanta's more of an opportunistic defensive team. So, we're talking in the context of Atlanta gets on a roll offensively. We don't think Philly can catch up, not because they won't have opportunities to catch up. It's because offensively, they're so streaky when it comes to other players, not named Ben and Embiid as shooters, that they won't have the firepower to match it, because that firepower has to make up for the fact that Embiid, obviously, is hampered with the meniscus. Mm-hmm. And Simmons doesn't have a coexisting jump shot. So, it, it doesn't work long-term. I think that's why they were going all in to get James Harden. They thought they were going to get James Harden until they realized they weren't going to get James Harden. And so this is it, I think, for Philly moving forward with this core. If it doesn't work this season, which we kind of all think it won't, as long as Brooklyn's okay. current duo doesn't get injured, yeah. <laughs> um, they're going to have to blow it up. And I think blowing it up, you can get some great personnel with the Simmons package trade. And this just coincides with the fact that Ben the way he's playing right now is the same way he played at LSU which is a shame because we expected him to at least take leaps and bounds to where he's a Giannis type player okay you're not a knockdown shooter but if somebody leaves you open in the mid-range you can hit a jump shot right and if he hits that consistently we're it's a whole other animal but what he gives you on a defensive end is undeniable he's all world at that end of the floor what he gives to you as a transition playmaker all world and the half court has improved in that area too. He's great. And they'll, in my opinion, be able to survive in this series against Atlanta just by being aggressive and assertive defensively. The intensity that they had in the second half, you don't have to have that all game because we know that's not sustainable at the NBA level, right. but increments start the game off with the pressure, um, start the quarter off with the pressure and then kind of backside with it. Start the second quarter. I'll start each quarter with that pressure to let Atlanta know we're here, put it on their mind. And so I think their defensive intensity alone will help them beat the Hawks. But come out the East and win. I don't think this Sixer team at all can beat anybody out west. Maybe other than the Nuggets, but I don't think they can beat anybody else out west. they ain't sure can't be either Brooklyn or Milwaukee. And so this is where this team is at moving forward. They're limited offensively because their star player at the guard spot can't shoot and if one thing has been proven in this modern era of nba if you're a point guard that can't shoot the basketball you're not going to be any type of threat to win any type of championship at this level of basketball i
0: i i completely agree i mean as much as i like ben simmons i i i just think that is such a that's such a hindrance uh with his jump with the jump shoot thing and it's not Sometimes he lacks confidence, sometimes or like most of the times he doesn't even shoot it. He doesn't like he doesn't even try to attempt to shoot it. So you're not going to get better like that. Um <clears throat> So let's transition to the Western Conference. Uh the Clippers. You mentioned the Clippers being the only team in the like that's left, that's remaining in the playoffs that can really shake up things with Brooklyn. Um the Clippers I like Kawhi. <laughs> I like Kawhi. Uh Paul George is a light switch. He he's he comes on and off. He he's a <laughs> Paul George is a light switch. He comes on and off. Um uh, I, I, so I I don't know like I I'm very curious to see how this um Utah series plays out because I do, I like, I kind of favor the Clippers in this series with with Utah's lack of perimeter defa- defense. Um, I, I feel like they shoot the three a lot, similar to kind of similar to Milwaukee. They shoot the three a lot. They got some streak. They got some streaky shooters. So could they go cold? Yeah, possibly. But I think the lack of perimeter defense. Is ultimately is going to be the downfall of Utah, but the Clippers. I I don't know how, I don't know how I trust this team because Dallas Dallas was the inferior team Dallas did, like the Clippers had better talent simple as that and that's why they end up winning the series because usually in a seven game series the most talented team wins the best team wins usually um, and I, I I felt like the Clippers just had more talent than the Mavs. Uh, but from what I saw, I don't like the perimeter defense that I saw from the Clippers in this math series. And I know Luka Doncic is a bad boy, but so is Kevin Durant. So is Kyrie Irving. And so is James Harden. So I just don't see them being able to contain those guys necessarily. I mean, they had problems with Luka. Luka led the playoffs in scoring. So <laughs> I don't know. Give me your take on the Clippers in Utah series a little bit. Um, Who do you have? Who do you have winning that series um, and why?
1: Yeah, you know, when the Clippers were down 3-2, and even when they won game six, I was like, man, whoever's playing Utah, I don't have them coming out at all. But in game seven, kind of gave me some re-belief back in L.A., not just with how they shot the basketball. They finally had a breakthrough performance in that series from three, they made 23-pointers. But the adjustments Ty Lue made. I'm going to be honest, this is the best playoff series I've seen Ty Lue coach in his career. And I know he's won a ring with LeBron, but I always feel like on that team, LeBron kind of ran the show in terms of the decisions being made and in terms of how he wanted the game to be controlled at his pace. In this series that Ty Lu coached for the Clippers against the Mavericks, he was cutthroat. Pat Bev played two games early on never going to play again because you're not defending anyone and you're not making corner threes. He ultimately staggered minutes with Reggie Jackson and Rondo initially and then ultimately was like, Reggie's going to be my guard in crucial positions. And in that situation, Reggie performed. He made 12 threes in the last three games. He was a shooter at the guard spot. He couldn't miss. And against that zone that Dallas put out in game five, he decided to go small because he banked on the fact that Dallas's bigs wouldn't utilize their size against a small lineup to do any type of damage consistently in the interior area because Porzingis doesn't want to play big anymore. He's hampered with injury. And Boyan's tall, but he's not a natural post score. And it worked because it allowed his three-point shooting lineup to still be on the floor. Those guys cashed in. They out-executed Dallas. And that's what really helped him win that series. Against Utah, I'm expecting Utah to kind of bring the same type of increments that Dallas played. I think Utah is not going to stay in a zone, but they're going to utilize various zone concepts because they feel like Gobert is a way better run protector than whatever Dallas had in their lineup yeah. And he is. So he, Jazz are going to make L.A. jump, shoot their way to a series victory. And the Clippers are going to have to showcase yet again why they were the best three-point shooting team and all of basketball can they do it we'll see we know playing in utah is a different animal we know the crowds raucous and we know on the offensive end utah has a primary scoring option like donovan mitchell for sure but they whip that ball around a lot better than dallas does so if the clippers mess around in that series and give the jazz open looks from start to finish this is going to be a quick little dust-up. But I think <laughs> L.A. as a team learned a lot against Dallas. And I felt like, you're right, Luka got whatever he wanted. But when Kawhi took a concerted effort in game six and seven to defend down the stretch the opposition's best player, the energy changed. The energy changed. And buckets weren't got weren't gotten effortlessly like they were early on. He's going to need to do that against Donovan Mitchell. Well, because if he decides... No,
0: go ahead, no, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead.
1: If he, If he decides to take, you know, plays off against Mitchell, he's going to make him play. But it's going to be hard to just coerce and focus in on Mitchell because, like I stated before, they swing it around effortlessly. Everybody touches the basketball to get a quality look. So you're right. Utah's defense when it comes to all-on-ball personnel is not the greatest. But Quinn Snyder is a great defensive coach as well. He's going to use a multitude of concepts to make sure George and Leonard have tough times getting easy baskets. And he as well is going to make, their consulary parts beat them. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But I got clippers and six based upon the adjustments Tyloo made in the last series. It's telling me he's going to be just as cutthroat in this one to maximize the best lineup possible that he feels has a chance to beat the Jazz.
0: Okay. Um now <clears throat> you have Clippers and Six. I just got a report uh that Mike Conley is out for game one. Uh so he's gonna be out for game one. The Clippers, you you mentioned it a little bit. I just don't. I just they, they you okay. So if Utah plays this matchup zone, um, and they ha and they have a way better rim protector than Dallas does, uh, and Rudy Gobert, it's going to force the Clippers to make jump shots. I just I, I, Markeith Moore struggled early on in the series, um. Guys like Patrick Beverly, I don't know how mu- I don't know if he's gonna how much he's gonna play actually, but guys like that, the Clippers, they 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 can be a bit streaky as well. Um, but Kawhi, Kawhi did give some effort on defense late, you know, down the stretch. I think so, I think some of it was like Kawhi playing good defense, but I thought also I thought Luca was just tired by that point. I just think he was fatigued by that point. Um, when Kawhi was guarding him down the stretch in the fourth quarters, but I, I think I think the Clippers should win this series. I think it's gonna be a seven game series. I think it's gonna be another hard fought series for the Clippers. I don't think Utah's just gonna go down that easy. I just don't. Um, the Clippers. Well, Kawhi, do you think where where does Kawhi rank? As far as top 10, is he top 10, top 15, whatever? Or like, or does he have a legitimate case for being the best player in basketball? Because I wanna I wanna because after we talk about Phoenix and Denver, oh well no, before you even answer that, can we talk about Phoenix and Denver? Because Denver lost game one last night, and then we'll talk about the top 10 players. Phoenix and Denver, Denver lost game one last night. Who do you have in this series? I have Phoenix. Who do you have in this series? And what did you see from game one that, uh you know, what, what can Denver improve on looking at in game two, going into game two?
1: Well, to start off, I had Suns and six. I don't really think on it for a couple of days. But really I had Suns and six because I feel like, because I saw the Denver series against Portland, really the last three games from start to finish. Um, Suns are a better defensive team than Portland was So with that Denver (laughs) is going to not get as many Open looks as They were getting against Portland And so we know the way that they play They play inside out So Jokic is their point center And he's going to create a ton of quality looks For his wings to make quality Pull up jumpers or three point shots And those three point shots And pull up jumpers will occasionally be open just off of Jokic's innate ability to throw guys open. But they're going to be contested. And while they are contested, am I going to consistently beg on the fact that guys other than Porter Jr. are going to hit those contested threes? I don't know. And then on the defensive end for Denver, they can't really stop anybody at all. So, you know, Phoenix is going to get whatever they wanted. Like we saw in game one, the corner was open a ton. There were a couple of times... Bridges could have really took threes, but instead he overpassed the situation to turnovers. But he had the game of his life. And a lot of that was because quality corner looks. And then as the three-point shot falls, he has the confidence and he's feeling himself to put the ball on the floor and attack the rack. I love Jokic as an offensive player. He can't jump at all to touch probably the rim. He's not a leaper, so he's not a rim protector, which meant Aiden was effective against him on his side of the floor offensively because he's more athletic and mobile than Jokic is when it comes to rim running or just being around the basket and being an active participant there. I think for Denver, their best chance is Jokic is just going to have to be aggressive. He's going to have to get Aiden in foul trouble. And Aiden, man, he's making a case to get that max deal. We know it's coming around the corner. His contract's coming up. His rookie extension, he's qualifying for that. And he's balling out in the postseason. And so since we know both guys can't really stop each other, somebody has to get someone in foul trouble. Jokic is the best guy to do that because of his skill set offensively and that's going to coincide with him being aggressive I don't think he was as aggressive in this basketball game at all I think he kind of was in the first half a little bit and then the second he was trying to play make, let other guys get involved those guys were making shots off of misses sons were playing run out situations and they're feasting also both teams like to run but I think Denver may need to play slower because the way the, Sun- the Suns are just, I think, more athletic. You to run back and forth offensively mm-hmm. because they can score and they can also make on the fact that off of a miss, we'll get a stop because we're better defensively than you are. Denver is not. And considering the fact that they don't have the creator known as Jamal Murray to get away with playing up and down, every shot that they have offensively needs to be methodical and quality. Composite did a cool job playing that way for about 8 minutes and then he became Composso, the bad one, where he started being erratic and rushing things, and it was a reminder of, oh, this is why he came off the bench throughout the year, because he's erratic. As crafty as he is, he's an erratic firecracker waiting to happen. So when you look at that for the Nuggets, that's their best hope. Jokic being aggressive, them slowing it down and playing methodical, and I think Mike Malone found something with his bench. When both teams go to their bench, it's like looking in a mirror. They're gonna have Sarich and Millsap be the five. Mm-hmm. They may have a stretch four for the for the Nuggets, which is Michael Green for the Suns. I can't really think who it was in the moment, but they're gonna play small and basically they're gonna challenge each Cam small Johnson. Ball second unit. Right, Cam Johnson. So they're gonna challenge each other's small ball units to be effective. And I thought Denver's small ball unit was effective for a half. And then in the second half, I thought Phoenix's second unit rode the wave of the Phoenix starters, and they just kind of piled on from there. So Denver win the second unit battle, play a lot more methodical than they're accustomed to doing, and Jokic being aggressive. And I think that's their best shot. And that's mainly because they just don't have the personnel, man, I think, to outscore Phoenix. And they don't have the personnel to stop Phoenix either. So your best bet is to slow it down get the best quality shots you can offensively. So even off of a miss, you can get back in transition and at least try to be a resisting factor defensively. I guess that fluid motion Phoenix offense.
0: Absolutely. Um, I, I agree. I think, I think Denver was playing a bit too fast. It was a track. It was a track meet last night. I think it was, I think Denver was playing a little too fast. um, you mentioned they don't have the offensive firepower that they usually would. Um I, I, I think Denver. I'm am a bit surprised defensively. How like like, and I know they lost some guys, but defensively, I expected to be. I, I expected them to be a little bit better than what they have been showing me over these last. Like even with Damian Leonard with Berserk. I kind of expect, like, I wanted them to be a little bit more aggressive defensively. I felt like, Um, mm -mm, excuse me, Uh, Chris Paul, he had a really big second. Like from the first after the first quarter and on, Chris Paul was spectacular. He played some, he played pretty well. That was a good sight for Phoenix uh, fans. Um, Devin Booker, because I want to talk about Devin Booker a little bit. When I when before the playoffs started. I looked at Devin Booker's game offensively, a great in-between score. Three-level score. I don't think, and people look at this is why I like my eye test. And I I, I love stats. I think stats could be useful in many of many uh arguments in occasions. But when having certain discussions, Devin Booker is an absolute lethal shooter. But if you look at his if you look at his three-point percentages, they're a bit average. I think some of well, and and I think some of that is just contested three point shooting. um and just more on the dribble three point shoot it's not a lot of catch and shoot. Um, but Devin Booker's a great shooter. Don't overthink it. Can we talk about the evolution of Devin Booker and how and and I get it, Chris Paul. Wherever he goes, there's the Chris Paul effect, even though I think in Phoenix it's been a bit overstated um, by certain media members. I think it's been overstated. But can we talk about the evolution of Devin Booker in this in his first-ever playoffs?
1: Yeah, we, we really do need to talk about it. I don't want to really touch base. You brought up a great point in terms of Booker as a shooter. I remember watching Undisputed, and Skip kind of alluded to the fact that he wasn't all that as a shooter. That caught me off guard. But then you made a good point. I think a lot of guys are box score watching. You look at his percentages, you're like 34%. Eh, That's like league average. Nothing special. Two things that reminded me he can shoot. College at Kentucky, he was their shooter. Right. He was their knockdown shooter coming off the bench. Three-point shooting contest in the pros, he won that against Curry and Clay. I think they both played that year. So he can shoot the rock. Now, the percentages aren't great because he was – their primary and best scorer throughout his young career with the Suns. So he took a lot of bad shots and he played with the basketball in his hands a lot. So he didn't have an opportunity to move without the basketball as much as he's doing right now, which is what Monty preached to him when he came there and took the job a couple years ago. It's worked out wonders for him. Now, his evolution, when he came into the league like Bradley Beal, catch and shoot guy, Earl Watson always alludes to the fact that when he coached the Suns, for a short amount of time he did he was not that great of a coach but it <laughs> sounded like he was a great um critiquer of booker's game in terms of helping him improve from where he was to where he is now talked about the in-between game talked about the ability to create off the bounce talked about the ability to pick your spots within your own offensive repertoire to find ways to outmaneuver the defense to get the best shots you can offensively earl watson played a huge part in booker's development and I think Monty Williams was the ice thing on the cake in terms of saying, you know what, Booker? We know you're a great talent. We know you're a great scorer. We're going to, in essence, merge your evolution as a talent within the NBA, thanks to Earl Watson. And your Kentucky days in terms of being a spot up of off-ball three-point shooter and make you be the complete Devin Booker that you can be at this pro level within my system for the Phoenix Suns. And while also adding competent point guard play, whether that was Rubio, who was cool last year, and now Chris Paul, who's a Hall of Famer in his own right, playing with the team this year. And it's done wonders. And in this game, um, a lot of his shots were in rhythm, but -hmm. they're in rhythm that were set up within the confines of the offense where he could just come into it, catch the ball on the run, pull up effortless. And it wasn't just him, Jay Crowder, a lot of catch and shoot threes, Bridges, a lot of catch and shoot threes. And, And in an NBA where, sure, you need a guy, Need a point guard that can get you guys into a set and get guys open looks. You need at least one or two playmakers on your team offensively. You can create their own, but having the having your offense have a certain flow to where everybody can get into a spot, catch the ball at a certain corner, pull up effortlessly, and shoot it in stride makes everything easily offensively. And as that game sped up last night against Denver, and they got into their flow, got into their set as the game went on, it was just their shot opportunities look way more effortless than Denver did and that coincides with a large part of Monty preaching man moving ball movement throughout the season and then Booker merging what he was in college and what he developed as as a pro into one in terms of being the all-star caliber talent the all-NBA talent that everybody alluded to early in his career we now see materializing on the biggest stage in the NBA playoffs
0: absolutely well said uh Okay, let's get into this. Let's get into the best cuz we I think we already clarified that Durant is the best player in the world. Uh and at the, at at this at this point, I feel like prior to the playoffs, I felt like there were like four to there were like five to six players maybe, four to five players maybe, maybe even six that on any day of the week, they could have been the best player in the world, right? Um, I feel like Durant is kind of separating himself from the pack, even coming off of the Achilles tear. And you can say he's playing with Kyrie, and you can say he's playing with Harden, okay. But I feel like he is separating himself. And I've always made this point about Kevin Durant. Um, about Kevin Durant and LeBron James. Um, let me let me let me say this. Durant, I've always said this. Durant is an adapter. He's easily to adapt. He's easily to please, easy to play with and easy to adapt to. Offensively, he doesn't need the basketball. He doesn't need to dominate the basketball to score and get his. He can I think on we he hit the 30 point mark last night and he had 17 shots. I think he had more than 30, but once he hit 30, he only he only took 16 shots. So he can get the 30 in 16 shots if he if if he's filling it. And I've always I've always said this to people about Durant and you know when comparing LeBron, and I'm not and I'm not saying Durant is better all-time than LeBron. I'm not. But Durant is so much easier to play with as a teammate because he can do multiple things. He just doesn't need the basketball to dominate and that goes to my point about LeBron James. LeBron as great as he is and everybody praises him for his playmaking and his passing ability and it's great it's awesome but Le- as great as he is LeBron is so difficult to play with cuz he doesn't adapt to your he doesn't adapt to your skill sets you have to everybody that anybody that plays with LeBron James you adapt to him you adapt to his play style you adapt to the to the way that he wants to play. Point point in case. Kevin Love, Chris Bosch. Kevin Love, Chris Bosch in my in, in, in Minnesota and in Toronto. Kevin Love and Chris Bosch were two two of the best power forwards in their quote unquote prime. Kevin Love was a 28 and 12 guy in Minnesota. Chris Bosch was a 24 and 8 type of guy, 24 and 9 type of guy in Toronto. Got both both players, great low block skills, great on-the-block skills, could shoot a little bit, but that wasn't that really wasn't their game. They get with LeBron James, they turn in, they literally turn into glorified stretch fours. Literally. They, they turn into glorified stretch fours. So it's and it's not a it's not a critique of LeBron necessarily. It's more of a big up with Kevin Durant and guys like Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. But it's just it's just a fact. I, and, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but I feel like it's a fact. It is so easy to adapt to Kevin Durant and play with Kevin Durant because guys around him, Kyrie, James Harden, Steph Curry, they still get to play their games. Well, LeBron, you have to confine into his system, into his play style. Tell me if I'm right or wrong.
1: No, that's facts. Um, I think LeBron throughout his career has really made a living off of being the primary ball handler. And I can understand why. Great decision maker. He trusts himself to have the offense go through him and make the final decision because he's got the IQ, the intangibles, athleticism, innate passing ability, all of that. But Durant, I think it was always slept on until he got the Golden State. Because I think people knew once he was going to Golden State, I think cats knew, dang, this team's going to be overpowered. They're going to win a ring. Not thinking oh, he can play without the basketball so unselfishly. They just were like, he's an MVP, Curry's an MVP, he gives you 30, Curry gives you 30. Who's stopping that? But I think people start to realize in Golden State, man, he can really play without the basketball. Man, he can really be productive without having to go ISO against a bracketeer defense 87 games a year. Like, he can really do this. And so, Brooklyn, we're seeing it again. Yeah, he's getting 30, but it's in 15 shots, and a lot of these shots, he's getting the ball late in the shot clock, and it's one-on-one defense, but he doesn't have to take five dribbles to get it off. (laughs) It can be a quick move, boom, I'm there. It could be a quick blow-by, I'm there. And couple that with your seven feet, couple that with you can shoot from anywhere, from the free throw line to the parking lot, and couple that with he's improving as a playmaker, and he's unselfish to a fault. He... Will get a basketball at the high-low area and literally tell a Joe Harris to come near him so the defense, his help side defender, can come converge on Durant so he can give Joe a wide-open three on the opposite end of the court. And the half-court set. This is what we're talking about with Durant. So easy to play with because he's going to make sure you get your looks. He's going to tell you to shoot your looks. And he's going to do so without, at times, touching a basketball at all. He'll just tell you to come in his area Code so that defense can come to him so you can get a quality look. And so I just feel like LeBron, I think, in my opinion, he took a lot of probably good years away from guys like Love and Bosch. He's taken away Kyle Kuzma, contrary to popular belief, his whole rookie contract away. So where people are really thinking Kuzma can't play, when it really comes down to the fact that he's in a system where he's being forced to spot up every single possession. And if he gets the ball with 15 seconds left, Okay, in that 15 second spin, make something happen. After not touching the basketball or feeling incorporated in an offensive set for eight possessions down in a row. Don't have to worry about that with KD. He's gonna give you a look whether you can shoot the basketball or not. And then if you don't execute it because you're afraid to shoot it, he's gonna get on you. Because he's gonna be like, look, man, in his eyes, I'm Durant. So you're gonna get great looks because of me. Right. Utilize that to your advantage and be aggressive. LeBron. Don't really get to be aggressive unless he decides for you to be so. And that usually can curtail itself into late in the shot clock. And that's just an unfortunate fact that that's what it is.
0: Yeah, and it's not in and, and people probably it's not uh it's not a bash LeBron type of thing. It's just like I said, it's a big up of Durant and how great Durant is. Um, but LeBron is like I said, LeBron rightfully so to a degree. His playmaking ability, his basketball IQ is second to none. So yeah, he should be making those decisions, but as you mentioned, Campbell, he took off some years, some good years from Kevin Love and Chris Bosh, and, and you know, guys, you know, the, and I think I do think Kyle Kuzma has picked up some bad habits. Um, I do, I just, I just do, and I don't think you know, I don't think he's as good as you know, some people tried to make him out to be like a. Some people thought he was as good as Jason Tatum. He's not that good, but. I do think some of the like some of the craziness of Kyle Kuzma, like you said, contrary to belief, you know, it comes from being limited as a quote unquote score. Um, And that's why I think a guy like Brandon Ingram, who didn't work that like the LeBron and Brandon Ingram dynamic really didn't work. And a big reason is because like, obviously, LeBron James needs the ball, but Brandon Ingram He's, he's a good shooter, but Brandon Ingram needs the basketball as well. He needs the basketball as well. And that's why you saw when the trade happened between the Pelicans and the Lakers, all of a sudden Brandon Ingram emerged into an all-star caliber player because he finally got the ball and the, the needed touches to do so. And, with, I think, and the reason why I think LeBron works well with Anthony Davis is because AD, yes – he needs the ball. Yes, AD is a scorer. But AD needs somebody to get the ball to him. And LeBron, and who better than LeBron? Like, LeBron is a great playmaker, and he's a great distributor who can put you in the right positions, in easier positions, quite frankly, to score the basketball. But but that's on his time. That's on his will. And I think um a guy like, like I said, a guy like, not even Kevin Durant, but even a guy like Steph Curry. Doesn't need the basketball. He can move. He can move without the basketball, and just just with his gravity alone, that would that would open up shots for you. Now tell me this: G- can, if you can, because I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot. If you can, give me your top five players in today's NBA.
1: Yeah, um, I think my top five today in the NBA would be uh, Durant. Obviously, I think is number one. I think Kawhi's two. Um, I think Giannis is three. And I think a fourth would be Jokic. And I think five could be, uh, let's see. I think I'll put five AD, even though he was unhealthy. Because I'll put AD at five because his importance. When he was there, health-wise for the Lakers, they were up to him. Basically, when he played well, they won. And when he wasn't on the floor and he didn't play good, they lost. So I think that's my vibe right now in terms of the vibe I've been getting playoff wise at this point. I think Booker is a close honorable mention. And I say close because he had a great close out game against the Lakers, I think submitting himself as, in my opinion, the best young coming upper so far in the league. Mm. But let's be real, when it comes with the Suns, like the Hawks, they're a complete team. And Booker's able to play that way because Defensive responsibilities aren't predicated on him as much anymore. You have bridges and Crowder that handle the wing areas. He doesn't have to worry about being the primary facilitator. Paul's got that on lock. And then DeAndre Aiden, when his energy is up, is somebody that can also assist on the offensive end. So he can become a more fluidly efficient hired gun. While a guy like, I think, an AD and a Jokic have much more on their plate in terms of being playmakers, defensive well, in terms of being a playmaker in Jokic instance and a defensive acre AD's instance, mm-hmm. as well as them both being offensive engines.
0: So no Steph, no Luca,
1: No Steph and Luca because I think Steph at this point in his career is a great player, but I don't really think he makes anyone better like he probably did in his MVP years a mm. few years ago. I think a lot of that does have to do with him not having the proper team obviously when clay comes back they'll be a lot better but i also think a lot of it has to do with he's older and i also think that his point guard abilities are a little bit overrated so i don't think he's as natural as a playmaker as people give him credit for which is why when i hear these top five all-time point guard conversations and i hear he's two over isaiah i kind of cringe but that's another topic for another day <laughs> but um so that's that's what i think Hasn't got out of the first round yet. Not a great defensive player, and he's extremely ball dominant. And I don't know at this point in his career. I don't know if he ever wants to. He willing to relinquish those ball dominant duties so the rest of his teammates can live up to their potential for the sake of the team winning postseason basketball series.
0: I uh, I think that's fair. Um, I think you got a, a point with staff a little bit. Um. Uh... May I think I'm thinking about it. Maybe Steph cracks into my top five. I think I think maybe he does. Uh, Luca. People know I like Luca a lot. Um, I do have. I think it's very interesting that you know interesting dynamic that the Mavs have in their hands because with Luca, very ball dominant, but as we've seen over the course of history, I mean, as you know, a recent example, James Harden, like. As great as those guys are, as great as Luca is, and I think he is phenomenal. I, I I told people, you know, you know what's so funny about Luca. I told like after like in the second half of his rookie year, I said Luca, Luca's gonna be a top ten score of all time. That like the way how the way how he plays offense and he plays at his own pace and rhythm. Nobody, you know, nobody uh, like scares him or makes him play faster or make him, you know, he, he plays at his own pace. And I, and I, I said it, I think I said it on this podcast, he's, he's going to, he's going to finish if, you know, barring injury, he's going to finish as a top 10 all time score, all time, top 10 all time score. But we all know the isolation play in the heavy ball usage it doesn't win you championships. Um, it, it it or it it's hard to win championships that style. It's hard to win championships playing that way. So I, I am curious to see what the Mavericks do. Um, if they can get a, a, a some type of uh, another ball handler, another ball handler that can create shots, uh, i.e., Bradley Beal, maybe. Um, you know, just throwing out there. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I think you make. I think I think you bring a good point. Um. Do you have anything else you want to add
1: yeah you know on right. lucas tip on the Luca topic i don't think they need another ball dominant player like bradley Beal. when i hear okay. guys bring up bradley Beal, mm-hmm. i feel like bradley Beal is a guy that needs the ball in his hands to be productive you think um he didn't yeah he didn't used to oh, okay. be i think early on it's clear with the wizards but i think he's at a point now in his career where he probably would feel like if I'm going anywhere, I need the ball in my hands to be productive because I've made my game to that level because I feel like I can be all I need to be that for my team to win. I think Luka, honestly, they need to build their team like Atlanta did. Atlanta made a conceded effort when they got Trey Young. Okay, we got our Steve Nash. Let's surround our Steve Nash with guys that can shoot. And if we're going to surround it with guys that can shoot, let's give him a couple of partners. Capella, Collins. Mm-hmm. Then let's give him a guy that can shoot, that can also put the ball on the floor and handle it a little bit when the offense breaks down. Boyan Bogdanovich. I think with Dallas, the way their team's constructed, they've got one guy that can kind of do that. Hardaway, but <laughs> Hardaway's very streaky and mm-hmm. he's not trying to make no one better but himself. <laughs> and a lot of participants in Porzingis could be materialized, but I think a lot of has to do with Porzingis isn't as healthy as he used to be because of the injuries and i think and porzingis talked about it and i think it's something that that i think i want to touch on after i say this mm-hmm. they don't use him well enough because like lebron luka needs the lane to be effective yep. and he makes everybody else kind of take a step back while his game is able to be further elevated i don't know if that's something he wants for himself or is that something that cuban and carloff behind the scenes have relinquished because they want to cater to their star so he can stay. I think for him to win a championship, that's going to have to change. And it can change because LeBron, when he won his last chip with the Lakers, let Rondo run some point guard duties while he was on the floor with them. And it opened up the basketball game for not just the teammates of LeBron, but LeBron himself. So I think for the Mavs, I'd build my team similar to Atlanta, but I think a lot of that's going to have to coincide with giving Porzingis a role that he's comfortable in because they made Porzingis take a step back and basically be a spot up stretch big. And he didn't fluctuate in that. So when you have a guy in Porzingis that you brought in to be a co-star, two things have to happen. We want to bring a co-star in that you're basically saying, yo, you're the co-star, but you're going to take a step back to our main guy, Luca. We need you to fit in this role. If you tell him to fit in a role and he sucks at it, then you need to do one or two things. You need for him to be in a role that he's comfortable in or you need to trade him. I think a role that Porzingis is comfortable in is being an office of presence inside. No, I'm not saying post him up five, ten times a game. But what I am saying is pick and pop moments can be somewhat of a staple, but not regularity where he gets his points. He needs to get some isolations on the elbow. He needs to get some pick and pop opportunities in the post. And he needs to get some isolation opportunities on the block. The same way the Lakers utilize AD, that's how Porzingis needs to be utilized offensively. We'll see if Dallas is going to do that. We'll see if Luca wants to be a part of that change. But I think that's what's going to have to happen along with shooters being surrounded on that offensive unit. Uh,
0: that's a good point. Um, I me if I, I think um, well, Porzingis. It, it It is a bit peculiar. It's a peculiar situation that they have there, uh, and how they use him. I think right now, I had so many high hopes for this duo with Luca and, and KP. Uh, I, I think uh they may, it wouldn't surprise me if the if the Mavericks try to trade Przingis. with the amount of money that he's making, they bought him in as they bought him in to be a guy like a second option, basically, right. Uh, a a Luca like, Anthony, like an Anthony Davis to Luca Doncic. That's like that's what they they that's what they've been trying to formalize, and it just hasn't worked out. And I don't know if, I don't know at this point if if Mark Cuban or any type of uh, or the coaching staff at Dallas is ready to relinquish those ball handling duties from from Luca. I, I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure. I don't know if Dallas realizes. the 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 amount of usage that luke i would suspect they do but i'm curious to see what happens in the off season with Porzingis because they wouldn't surprise like with the amount of money he's making wouldn't surprise if they try to move him
1: yeah with porzingis uh i don't know if they can move him you know his contract's kind of yeah bad and a lot of that a lot of reason why it's bad is because he can't stay healthy and then when he is healthy, his production has been so much diluted and it looks like he's not good. But I think in reality, it's they don't play him to the best of his capabilities as well as he sucks in the role that they gave him as well as he's always hurt. Now, team that seems interesting is Washington. But I can see the Mavericks facetiously going to Washington and being like, hey, we'll give you prison for Bradley Beal. <laughs> and the Wizards saying no. But I think if they could give up Porzingis and get some aspect of a first-round pick and maybe one or two of Washington's young wings, like a Rui Hachimura or Denny Advia, that'd be an assistance. But I think what I would do, realistically, pull Porzingis to the side, sit him down, talk to him. And I think both parties come to, like, headway. Basically, be like, look, we're sorry for making you feel like you're being taken a back seat in terms of fulfilling your offensive capabilities. We're going to incorporate you more in the offense. And then Porzingis had to apologize to them for sucking in the playoffs and saying he's going to play better in a more expansive role and making a conceded effort to stay healthy. Now, I thought Sam Mitchell brought up a good point on NBA TV saying when a player gets hurt, the offseason is all about rehab. They don't have time to focus on improving their game. So he didn't get as hurt as he usually was in the past few years this season. So he has an opportunity to probably fully tone his body, add more repertoire to his offensive skill set. And I think coming back, he could be even better. But for this team to work, the duo has to coexist. But I don't know. Like Dallas, they're in a tough spot because they're in a tough spot in terms of they can start thinking illogically instead of thinking, we got to get better because we lost twice in the first round. They could think, hmm, only team that can really guard us when we go ISO, one versus everybody is the Clippers, because they're the only team that beat us. So if we play somebody else in the playoffs, we can run the same system, win a playoff series, that's good enough, and build from there. So we could just wait the Clippers out, and that'll be enough. But if you do that, teams that will be coming in the future, Minnesota, they can mess around and get a number one pick. And they get a number one pick. They're going to have four, basically, lottery picks on their roster, and they're starting lineup that can all score. Uh, you know, the Suns, they're still here. They can defend and score. So if you think we could just ISO against the Suns, sadly mistaken. Denver. And then Denver, exactly. They're going to get Jamal Murray back. So this mentality of, all right, uh, we couldn't outscore Clippers because they had the defensive repertoires to neutralize Luka as time wore on. Other teams out West may not have the defensive schematic formula that L.A. has, but they can score just as much with you with a more deeper plethora of players on their roster. So I'm Dallas. Incorporate Porzingis in the offensive game plan more. Add more shooters around in the roster. And I think in these next few drafts, get guys that are Swiss Army nice offensively. They can shoot. But they can handle the rock too as a playmaker or as an offensive initiator for themselves.
0: Absolutely. I agree. Um, I agree. I I I like I like your I like I like where you're coming from. Um I, I and I, it's so funny. Cause I I, I felt I I melt, I met somebody that works within the Mavericks, and I'm gonna bring them on soon, uh, so we can like decipher all of this. I, I think it's I think the Mavericks have a interesting um, dilemma on their hands because you know, I think the hardest part is getting getting the star, the superstar. like Dallas have a top like if he's if if people don't think Luca's a top five player right now, Dallas has a top five player going on for the next ten years. so that 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 part is out of the way. Now you have to figure out. Who are the best pieces and fits around him that will ultimately lead to winning a championship? Uh, Because that's the main goal. Uh, I I kind of find it interesting that Dallas doesn't attract a lot of free agents, and you know, it's it's a state, you know, the state of Texas, no income tax, and Dallas is a very beautiful city. It's a great sports town. Mark Cuban is a owner that's going to put you on, you know going to plaster you everywhere so it's kind of interesting that dallas isn't really a place where free agents go uh i think the the attraction that luca brings i think that can change but it's just curious to me it's just curious to me but um i'm 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 gonna wrap it up here uh i thank you for coming on i appreciate you coming on once again uh obviously i'm gonna bring you back on to Continue to talk about the NBA playoffs, but anything, any last thing you want to talk about, or you know, you know, tell to tell the people, uh, you know, about your podcast or anything that you have coming up.
1: Yeah, a couple of things. Um, Intel Pod probably be dropping sometime later this weekend. I'll be um out of town in Chicago sometime this week. But before I dip on your pod, I want to touch base on that statement you made about the Mavericks attracting free agents. Um. I think it's something to kind of look into in the future, but you don't want it to be another issue down the line because I thought the deterrence from anybody going to Dallas was ownership and coaching. I think Cuban, I think a lot of players may have looked at Cuban as somebody that's heavily involved, mm-hmm. probably too much, right. to where it's kind of cringeworthy, where it kind of deters you from being a professional on the floor. And then Carlo had kind of the run-in with Rondo. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people can look at Carlo as being – authoritarian figure where he's got his own schematic principles and you just got to go by his say and if you don't go by his say tough luck hence Porzingis' situation where he basically said at the press conference look man they told me to play a role and i kind of had to do it (laughs) i mean like i didn't really have a choice so and then last but not least you don't want your star player Luca to get a bad rep to where no one wants to play with him and what I mean by that is, not saying Luca's a malcontent or he doesn't care about his teammates. Seems like a humble guy who's a competitor who wants to win. But you don't want people to be like, Luca's good, but he's a ball hog. And I don't know if I'm going to get the touches that I want. Or if I do get the touches I want, it's going to be laying the shot clock. And if we don't do well, it's not Luca's fault. It's mine. It's, it's a situation that's been common with LeBron. Now, we don't know if Luca's going to get fanatics like LeBron has, but it's possible where he gets fanatics to where his fans are like, Luca tries, he has bums on his team.
0: Ownership
1: and coaching staff have created it to where it looks that way to where players on the team are like, well, dang, I mean, I could be even better on the team, but I get like 10 shots a game, and they're all threes late in the shot clock. So those are all three issues that I think Dallas needs to kind of address, sweep not under the rug, but sweep out of the door to where it's pretty clear that that's not an issue. And that I think will allow Dallas to be a much more attractive free agency site than in years past.
0: okay, right on uh, <laughs> I like that. I like that and that that's a big possibility you know of Luca, you know uh, uh, of that stigma kind of growing, but um yeah, uh thank you for coming on. uh I you know I, I tune in to the Intel podcast uh, so you guys do as well. Uh, I'm gonna leave the links in the bottom of the description. In the description, uh, you guys enjoyed this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, me and Kuban- me, me um, Kubani is out. Uh, Kambui is out. Excuse me. We're out of here. Thank you guys for listening. Always remember, two choices, one decision. And I am out. Peace. Gone.